In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, first century Jerusalem. If you were a young man in that time period, what you wanted to do is you wanted to be a rabbi. That was the profession of choice. It was the cool thing. It would be the equivalent of today's you know, Michael Jordan, athlete, I want to be a pro football player, or, you know, whatever the cool new hip thing is to be, um, you know. But to be a rabbi in that day was the thing to do. All of the kids would want to be a rabbi because just rabbis were cool. And inside of the educational system and structure of the first century system, um, as we would go to school. We have kind of elementary, middle, high school. They had the same thing, except for their educational system really focused and structured its basis around the Word of God, the what we would call the Old Testament. What they would really focus on would be the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of the law, the books of Moses. And they would go in and they would begin learning at a very young age all of these laws and all of the things that pertain to them. So their first kind of introduction to school would be called Bet Sefer, which just translates the house of the book or the house of Torah, where young kids would go and they begin to learn. And then they would kind of go from there to Bet Talmud. This is the house of learning. And then from there they would go to Bet Midrash, which is the house of study. And so we kind of live in a society today where our educational system and our schooling does everything it, it can to really keep the word out of schools. Um, you can't do a lot of things um, that we do in church in our public school system. Just a few weeks ago, someone told me that uh, their child, they have a reading club. And in this reading club, each student has a chance where they can bring their book, whatever they want to read, and they'll, they'll read for a certain amount of time during the day. Um, so their son had brought a Bible in which the teacher told them that they couldn't bring a Bible. They couldn't bring a Bible to their reading club, which um, was like, oh, we, we didn't know. Uh, come to find out it's really against the law. They can't do that. They can't say, hey, you can't bring uh, a Bible to school, just like they couldn't tell a Muslim boy you couldn't bring the Koran or, or, or vice versa, any, any other thing. But, you know, we take down the Ten Commandments. We, we do everything we can, no prayer for this. And, that. and so we're doing everything we can to get the Word of God outside of our educational systems, where the completely opposite was the structure of first century Jerusalem, where they did everything they could to get the Word in to the students, because study, studying the scriptures was considered to be one of the highest forms of worship. So whenever they would study and learn these scriptures, this would be kind of the highest form of worship that they could do in towns and schools. I mean, uh, the towns that began to form in these areas really centralized around the educational and the school systems. And so it was just kind of part of life. And whenever a rabbi came to town, whenever a teacher came to town to teach, this was a big deal because he came in and there would be a group of young men following close behind him. And these were his disciples. And so all of the people would gather and they would listen to what this disciple would have to say. And remember, their whole educational system, they're learning what it means 
to interpret the scriptures, to memorize the scriptures, everything that the laws that God had for them. And so doing this, the disciple comes to town and they're, they're spending years and years of their life memorizing large, large portions of scripture. And they're studying underneath these rabbis. When finally they get to the end of their schooling system and the rabbis would come and they would talk to them. And remember, they've dedicated all of this time, all of this learning, only to be told by the rabbi, sorry, you're just not good enough. You're just not good enough. And at that point, that was really the end of their kind of educational system. They would go back into their, their other villages. They would go in, usually into the family business. So if, it was, if dad fished, you fished. If dad was this, then you were this. And that was just kind of the way it was. A rabbi said, hey, you know, because for that rabbi to take you on as one of his disciples means that you are now carrying that rabbi's name. You're going to learn from this teacher you're going to become, and you're going to be made just like him. So whenever you follow, you're following so close to your rabbi that you are representing him. And so imagine, you've gone through all of these years of education, all of this desire, all of this heart study, only for someone to tell you, sorry, you're not good enough. And this is the educational and this is the social atmosphere of the day of first century Jerusalem. And then, all of a sudden, something changes. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he looks, and he looks at fishermen, and he looks at tax collectors, and looks at all these people, and what does he say? He says, follow me. Now, this is huge, because now a rabbi has come to town, a teacher has come to town, and he thinks that I am good enough to be his disciple. All these other people told me I wasn't good enough, but this guy thinks I am good enough, and he thinks I can follow him, and I can be just like him. And so they drop everything that they're doing. If they were fishing, they stopped fishing because all of a sudden, look, here is this man that says, I am good enough. And so Jesus begins to call people unto himself. And he calls them with these two simple words, follow me, follow me. So he calls Peter and Andrew in Matthew chapter 4, saying, follow me. He calls Levi in Luke 5. He calls each one of the disciples, follow me. Mark chapter 10, another man approaches the rich young ruler. And he has this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says, well, this is what you must do now. Go and sell everything that you own and follow me. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, there is the heavenly promise for all of those who follow him. In John chapter 8, there is the promise that we who follow him would walk in the light. In Matthew 16 and 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this, if you would take up your cross and follow me, which is a bit odd. Because at this point, he's speaking to his disciples, and they have been following him. At which point they can look and say, we've been following you for a few years now, Jesus. What do you mean? Follow you? We've been following. We left everything. We, we put down uh, our fishing nets. We put down our businesses. We gave it. We've been following you. Now what are you talking about? Follow me, because now something is changing with follow me. 
Now he's saying, take up your cross. So in other words, there's an aspect of Jesus' ministry that's getting ready to shift. See, up until this point, it's been all the miracles. It's been all the wonderful things that have happened. People are gathering around. Or pre- have you heard about Jesus? And now all of a sudden, Jesus is switching because he knows he's getting ready to go towards the cross. And so following me isn't just now pertaining to all of the, the, the joys of all of people getting healed and people getting saved and all of the ones. But now follow me also is introducing a cross. And so it looks a little bit different. And now he's saying, take up your cross and still follow me. In John chapter 21 now, we find Jesus in a conversation with Peter. Now this is after the resurrection now. He's had all of these different calls that they would follow him. Take up your cross, follow me. Now, after the resurrection, he's having this conversation with, P- with Peter. He's saying, do you love me? Yes, master, you, you know that I love you. And then, again, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. A third time, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. And then he begins in John 21 and 18 and says this, Verily, I say unto you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and will lead you to a place that you don't even want to go. Jesus said this, indicating the kind of death in which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple who Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to the Lord, well, 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 what about this guy? What about him? Jesus answered and said this, what if I want him to remain alive until I return? What is that to you? You must follow me. You must follow me. So he's having this conversation with Peter. And this, remember, this is after the resurrection. He's had this, you know, do you love me? God, you, you know I love you. But listen, listen, Peter, there's coming a day where you got to do everything that you wanted all by yourself. You got to dress yourself. You wore what clothes you wanted, all these things. You did what you wanted because life was good. But there's coming a day where following me means this. You're going to stretch out your hands. Someone's going to lead you to a place that you don't want to go. And this is what it means to follow me. And so he says this indicating the type of death that Peter would glorify God in. And he's saying, after this, follow me. Even in this, even in this death, follow me. So imagine this. A um, couple, Chris and Carla, could y'all come up here? Little, little example here. Carla's going to be John. You're going to be Peter. So you're right here. Right? And you're, you're behind. You're following and G- Jesus is having this conversation with Peter. Do you love me? Yes. Yeah, you love me. Again, and then again, and it happens again. Um, but part of me, part of following me means this, that your, your death is going to be in a, into a realm that you don't want to go. Hmm, follow me. And that's what Jesus says. At which point, now Peter turns and says this, what about this guy? How often in our lives, when Jesus says something that we don't like, or when someone, uh, e- even at our, our workplace and life, oh, what, what, what about them? We want to deflect the situation to say, well, well what, about, what about this person? Well, well, what 
what kind of life are they going to have? And Jesus says this, well, what does it matter to you if she remains in life until the day that I come back? Now, do you see the contradiction here? The contradiction in the sense of, not that he's contradicting himself, but in the sense of there's death. Your, your life is going to end with this following of death. His life may end with this following of life. And both are following Jesus. The same Jesus, two completely different paths. And Jesus says, but what is it to you? See, the gospel comes altogether personal at this point. What is it to you? What is it to you if now all of a sudden, like we talked about last week, when Chris gave his testimony with being diagnosed with cancer, what if you now have cancer and she just gets news that she just won the lottery? Follow me. Thank you, guys. See, that's a, that's, a, that's a hard thing. We're in the midst of this, and Jesus says, this is the type of, of path that I have laid out for you. And then all of, all of a sudden, all around us, we begin to look, well, what about them? What about this person? And all of a sudden, they're blessed, and they're, oh, man, this is, so we want to deflect. And Jesus is saying, what's that to you? What's it matter if I raise this one up? What's it matter if I put this one down? You follow me. See, there's this natural inclination within all of us that we want to deflect the situation to someone else. Well, look at someone else. Look at what they're doing, and God makes it all together personal. Following Jesus. And see, right now, today, in this moment, we live in the outworking of those simple words. Follow me. If you're in this room this morning and you call yourself a Christian, you're living the outwork of those words of Christ. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. And one person's path may be completely different from this person's path. One person may be right now at this moment going down a trail that, man, it really hurts. It's painful. We don't understand why these things are happening. But at the end, Jesus is saying, in all things, that it would glorify God, all things for the good of those who believe. We love to compare ourselves to each other. We love to base our own righteousness upon someone else. When God looks at us and says, I'm calling you to be righteous, we look and say, well, I'm better than this guy, so I'm doing pretty good. Or, and Jesus is saying, no, it doesn't matter him or this person doesn't matter Mother Teresa, it doesn't matter Gandhi, it doesn't matter this person, or it doesn't matter how bad you think this sinner is. No, you follow me. Your righteousness isn't compared about any of that. It's all together personal, but we like to kind of deflect it. If you go to um, the bookstore, Barnes & Noble, if you could find one that's still open, um, and go into the Christian book section and look, and you will see all types of books on Christian leadership and just how to be a Christian leader and how to lead in today's society and all this stuff. And we have kind of fallen into the misconception that you were called to lead. And that's just not true. You are not called to be a leader. I know that kind of throws in the face Everything that everyone's ever taught you. You're going to be a leader when you grow up, and you're going to do this. And you're, No, you're not. You are called to be a follower. You are called to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And every great leader has learned how to follow. Every great leader has learned how to follow. Bad leaders never learn how to follow. Show me a leader that hasn't learned how to follow, and I will show you a path that leads to destruction. The fact is, we are called to follow. The fact is, Jesus was a follower. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father does. My will is to do his will. Jesus was the greatest leader of all times because he was the greatest follower of all times. He followed God even though the end said, it's a cross. Even when he prayed, Lord, if, it, if this cup could pass me, please, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was the ultimate follower. And so that's why he could look and he could say, follow me. Because he is following God. But we've kind of been taught that we have to lead. We have to do this and do that. But the fact is we have to follow. And we've come and we've reverted to a place that now says this. Pray a prayer. Invite Jesus into your heart. Join a church. Sit back and be quiet. Don't raise too much ruckus. Don't ask too many questions. Never question the pastor. What he says, that's like law. You know, it's just like hearing from Jesus himself when the pastor talks. And for the next 20 years, sit back and learn. And then just maybe we'll tell you that you're good enough. And then just maybe you can lead. And just maybe then you can teach. Does that maybe sound a little bit familiar? Has anybody experienced this in their Christian walk? And see, here's the thing. We could agree with that statement, but what we often don't realize is whether we like it or not we are products of that system that we've grown up in and see we've come to this type of mentality where everything revolves around these four walls our christian walk takes place within these four walls and this is our relationship with christ because everything we know has to come from here And what I've learned is we don't like, for for example, we're people that like the option. We're people that talk a lot about things like freedom, and we say, oh, yes, we're free, when the fact is we don't like freedom at all. We like the idea of being free. We We love, oh, we're free, we're free. And when all the time we're really just like a teenager inside the house of their parents saying, I can't wait until I grow up a little bit more because I'm going to get out of here and you just wait. I'll be able to go out whenever I want and do whatever I want and I'm going to be free from this house only to go out and be free. And they realize this, being free is expensive. (laughs) Now you got to get a job. You got to buy things like insurance. You gotta, you gotta do all kinds of things that you don't want to do for the sake of that freedom. And there's a real, see, we love the idea of freedom, but freedom itself is a whole nother ball game. Freedom has become kind of romanticized in our minds. And I know this because of this picture that I'd like to show you. Conformity. When people are free to do whatever they want, they usually imitate each other. 
Now think about that for a second. When given the freedom to do whatever you want, when God has come down and said, this is what I have for you, how often do we just fall in line with what everyone else is doing? How often is it easy just to kind of continue to go on that same track? It's easy to conform to the ways of this world. It's easy not to stand out. See, we love movies in which the hero stands out. Movies like Glory, you know, where Denzel Washington is charging the hills at the very end there, or or Gladiator, where he's done everything and he's fought this good fight, or the movie Pay It Forward, where the little kid is just doing all these wonderful things, or probably the most famous one of all, Braveheart, where he goes and lays it all on the line, and at the very end of the movie, he's laying there and he cries out, Freedom! But we forget something about all of those heroes. He's crying out freedom as he's dying. As Denzel charged that hill, he got shot. The hero often dies. Freedom comes with a high, high cost. To be free means to go against the cultural norm. Because the cultural norm is to be enslaved. The cultural norm is to conform to conformity. It means to go against what everyone else is doing. And anytime you go against the norm, you will always face opposition. Always. And Jesus tells us this. Listen, to be a follower of me, it means people are going to oppose you. There's going to be certain things in your life that aren't going to be comfortable. Being free, being a follower of Jesus Christ means that you're really an outsider. It means being mocked. It means being ridiculed. It means being misunderstood. It means being slandered, and it often means being crucified. And so this is what Jesus says when he says, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Through the good times and the bad, follow me. And if we only follow him in the good times, we are missing out. We are missing out on the adventure that we were all created for. Because following Jesus is anything but normal. Jesus rolled into town and shook things up. Jesus rolled into town and, man, he just did things way outside of the box. So far outside of the box, the question, what box? Really? That's what Jesus came and did. But yet we'd like to stay in the conformity of the system that we've been taught. Um, For example, or let me give you another example that's the opposite. We had a, a, and I might have told you all this one time, we had a volunteer here once that uh, he was serving in the children's church. And after church, I guess we had a couple kids there that were visiting, and one of the kids spit on the, the the new volunteer and they told me this afterwards and I guess I think everyone kind of expected me to be like oh I'm sorry that the kid spit on you and I was just like no man that's awesome high five it's like that's amazing like yeah you got persecuted for the gospel it's like it's like dude you're gonna serve again next week God's like called you you know you're supposed to be in there like it's part of it you're just doing what the kingdom said I was in India 
And I was preaching uh, to this one village, and as I preached to this village, the guy on the outside was, like, doing the, the uh, curses for, what, for me and the team that I was with right in the midst of we were preaching. Then all of a sudden they started throwing rocks at us. And I just thought, as we kind of got kicked out of the town, I was thinking, this is awesome. I was thinking, Lord, thank you. And I kind of, for a moment, even in that, kind of realized what Paul was saying. Man, even in these persecutions that I face, like, it's nothing compared to the glory of God. He would count us worthy to go through these things. Um, last week, as Chris talked about laying in that bed with cancer, and Carla asking him, can you praise him now? Can you follow him now, even in the midst of the bad times? And so what happens is we kind of live a life where we think that all of the bad things that happen to us and all of the uh, trials that we face are all an outworking of the devil. And man, the, the devil is doing this and all of these things. And, and there's really a focus on the stuff that the devil is doing rather than what the purpose is behind it. In other words, this, um, flat tires or bad hospital reports or whatever it is in your life, man, all these things are happening and uh, my, my stuff, man, I, I, I lost my house, I lost my car, I lost my thing. And there's the realization that the devil doesn't care anything about that. He doesn't care about your car. He doesn't care about your house. He doesn't care about any of that. The devil is after you. He's trying to get you. And all of that is just stuff. It's just junk. And Paul says this, I have counted all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung that I may win Christ. Like all of these things, don't care anything about the stuff. How often do we just get in this kind of pattern, in this flow where we think it's about different things and the second something goes wrong, we cease to follow Christ. The second there's a cross involved, something must be wrong. But Jesus told us from the beginning, like follow me. Even if if your path leads in a direction you don't want to go and the person right next to you leaves leads in a path that's full of seemingly life. What's it matter? Follow me. Being a follower is costly, but not being a follower is even more costly. And so Jesus came. He came on the scene in that first century Jerusalem, and he brought equality. He looked at men and women, and he said, you follow me. Someone told you you weren't good enough, but you are through me. You can do it. You can follow me. The veil was torn. He made a way for everyone to enter in and to be just like him. I didn't mention this earlier, but when a rabbi would then at the end of that schooling period begin to teach or Uh, not teach, but question those young men about the scriptures to see whether or not they were worthy or not to be one of their disciples. He would, um, the process of that questioning was called the yoke, the yoking. Seeing of whether or not those young disciples could answer 
that rabbi's questions. So in other words, they were going through the yoking process. What does Jesus say? He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. See, someone else's yoke, the yoke of man, if you try to just please man, man, that's a whole lot heavier burden than trying to follow God. See, man's ways is full of rules and regulations and saying, this is what it means to be a Christian. You have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And Jesus just says, follow me. Leave everything and follow me. I have the band come back up. We're going to sing one more song here in a minute. One more discussion Jesus is having with Peter. And this is happening in John chapter 13 and verse 38. And Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered and says, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you shall follow me afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him and said this, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow three t- three, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. All of this is taking place pre-resurrection, pre-cross. He's having this conversation, and Peter said, "Man, I, I will follow you, Jesus. I'll follow you wherever you may go." And here's the thing: we can hear a message like this about following Jesus, and we can kind of say to ourselves, you know what, I, I, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to follow him. And, and we leave this place, and we try our best to follow him, only to fail miserably, only to just like Peter, deny him over and over again. Because remember, this is happening pre-resurrection. What's the point? The point is you cannot follow on your own strength. You have to follow with resurrection power. You have to follow with his power, with the things that he has done. The message of the gospel is very simple, that you are not good enough. But he is. And if you would follow him, you can be just like him. He made a way. And he says, you are good enough because of everything that I've done. Nothing that you've done. Nothing of yourself. There's nothing inside of you that can somehow add to what Christ has already done. The cross paid it all. It made a way for all of us to enter in. It made it possible for you to follow Jesus. It made it possible to follow him in the good times and the bad. I'm going to ask you all to stand now as we sing this song and Maybe there's someone in here that this morning would just say, you know, I've, I've been that person. I've tried to follow in my own strength. I've kind of given in to the conformity of this world. And uh, the reality is, like, my Christian walk doesn't look a whole lot more different than before I was a Christian. Maybe I've been just trying to do it in my own strength. I want to follow him more. So just as we sing the song, I'm just going to ask you in your own way, in your own words, just ask God, Lord, your resurrection power, 
in my life. You give me the strength to follow even when I feel I can't. Even when I'm tempted to like turn and, and put the blame on someone else and say, well, what about this guy? And what about this? At this moment, it's all together personal. It's just you and God, your heart and his heart colliding. He is jealous for me. He loves like a hurricane and I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. And I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are for me And oh, how he loves us so Oh, how he loves us How he loves us so been a presentation of Coastal Vineyard Church, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information on who we are and how you can support future podcasts, visit us on the web at www.coastalvineyard.org. Come on, be safe.